This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Elliot Holt, author of the novel You Are One of Them, which was a New York Times book review editor's choice. Elliot Holt has an MFA from Brooklyn College. She has won a Pushcart Prize and was the runner-up of the 2011 Penn Emerging Writers Award. Her debut novel, You Are One of Them, tells the story of Sarah Zuckerman and Jennifer Jones, two best friends living in Washington, D.C. in the 1980s. With Sarah's encouragement, both girls write letters to Yuri Andropov, asking for peace, but only Jenny's letter receives a response. Later, Jenny dies in a plane crash. The novel is told in first person in Sarah's voice as she looks back on this time in her life and her search for answers. So let's start off with talking about the inspiration for this novel. The initial inspiration came from a real event. In 1982, there was an American girl named Samantha Smith who lived in Maine. At the age of 10, she wrote a letter to then-Soviet Premier Yuri Andropov asking him, basically, if he was going to start a nuclear war um, because she was really worried about you know, nuclear war with the Russians. And she became this international media sensation because Pravda, the paper in Russia, published her letter in the USSR. I mean, and then also what made her really famous is that Andropov wrote back to her and said, no, no, you know, we would never start a war first. And he invited her and her parents to the Soviet Union um, for a couple of weeks in the summer of 1983. And they went on this much publicized you know, tour. They went to Moscow. They went to what was then Leningrad. Um, they went to a pioneer camp. Um, anyway, at the time when all this was happening, um, you know, Samantha Smith was 10 when she wrote the letter. I was eight at the time. Um, but following this in the news, because um, like a lot of kids in my generation, I was really worried about nuclear war. And I just thought it was really cool that a kid, you know, had had sort of written this letter and was kind of playing ambassador. So I, I found her, um, you know, very inspiring. And most people have forgotten about her. She died in a plane crash in 1985. She really is just a footnote in, in the Cold War history. Um, but in graduate school, when I was getting my MFA at Brooklyn College, I just suddenly found myself thinking about Samantha Smith for the first time in years. And I was what I was thinking about, you know, with my adult perspective was less, oh, how wonderful that a child you know, wrote this letter, and more the way we project things onto children and the way children, you know, represent innocence and, and become kind of useful propaganda tools in that sense. And I was just sort of thinking a lot about the way Samantha Smith was kind of packaged by both sides. She sort of represented a lot of things for both the Russians and the Americans. So I, I was just, um, couldn't stop thinking about her. And then I thought, well, what if there had actually been two girls who wrote to Andropov? What if they were best friends? You know, what if the a silent friend we've never heard about was the one who had the idea. You know, what if she actually wrote the letter? And I just thought, what, how would that change a friendship if, um, if you know, these two girls who were best friends were suddenly, you know, only one of them became famous? <laughs> and I thought, well, what if 
the one who's left behind is sort of doesn't look the part, you know, and that and that somehow she feels that part of the reason she doesn't become the famous child ambassador is just because she doesn't have the, you know, the natural camera ready poise and charisma, you know. Um, so again, I was just thinking a lot about the way image affects things and, you know, the way we present ourselves and the way, you know, we things are projected onto us. I've read that you wrote the first 70 pages of this novel again and again and again, looking for the voice and tone of the story. Can you tell me about that? For me, a lot of it is just the ear. I really need to hear. There has to be a certain tone that sort of clicks for me. And so for me, with anything I'm working on, until something sort of clicks, there's a point at which somehow I don't It really, click is the only way I need, I can put it because it's almost like a little gear that, you know, you find the right gear or something and suddenly everything's sort of smoother. And it, but, I, but I'll be very stuck until I click into place somehow. And then I start to sort of hear it and then it kind of starts to move. I don't know how it sounds like mumbo jumbo, but it's true. So for me, until I heard in my head, you know, until I wrote the line, the first defector is my sister, I I had not unlocked the voice and the tone of this book. And then once I had that line, the whole book was so, it, you know, then I was able to write the whole thing in a year. When you were writing those 70 pages, obviously you knew, when you were writing them again and again, obviously you knew that you were looking for something that you weren't getting. Right. And was it just that belief that you had a nugget there that kept you going? Yeah, because I, I think those pages I was rewriting, you know, some of the plot points were there, you know, the girls writing the letter and the, you know, some of that stuff was there. But I thought, you know, I have this material, but I don't, it's not clicking and something's missing. And then somehow, who knows how, I just sort of wrote the first defector was my sister. And it, it didn't just unlock kind of tone for me. I mean, it sort of gave me a sense of what the narrative perch was. I was like, okay, I can sort of imagine now that she's looking back from quite a quite a number of years in the future. And I also, but I also, you know, it gave me the central metaphor of the book that political defection is personal abandonment. <laughs> um, and, you know, I like the sound of that line, but it also just sort of, it made me figure out so many things um, about Sarah Zuckerman, the narrator, and about, you know, kind of her worldview and a sense of herself as kind of a, a martyr or someone who's easy to leave. You know, she's gotten sort of attached to the idea that she's she's a person that um, is easy to leave. Um, and so all those things sort of came out of the language itself. You know, and the kind of, the way she has this sort of epic idea of her own history and the way she's been betrayed. But yeah, I, I just had to sort of hear it, you know. So I kept kind of, <laughs> kept writing pages I really didn't like. But I thought, oh God, some, because sometimes you do, you just have to write your way through it and then... For me, again, the language itself always becomes a guide. So I'll sort of hear, you know, the sound of one word can lead you into the sound of another word. You know, there's a, um, I think it's very much like music. And um, I think the best writers do have good ears. You know, they, they can hear subtle modulations in tone. You know, they hear it in other work when they read it, and then they somehow know how to find the musicality in their own work. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Elliot Holt, author of the novel, You Are One of Them. A lot of the, the thrust of the book for me was about loss and the impossibility. And loneliness. Yes, and the impossibility of believing in loss. And I'm wondering if for you, when you were imagining this, um, 
if not having, because Jenny died in a plane crash and there was basically it totally burned up, if it was really important to not have a body. Yeah, I think it was important because, you know, I, I mean, I, I should back up by saying I think it's true. I like the way you phrased that, the impossibility of loss, because I think when we lose someone close to us, it's so unfathomable. You know, you, you, you know, you sort of rationally know, like, okay, these things happen, but I think it's just really hard to wrap your head around that kind of loss. And so I think, you know, one of the things that's happening in the book is that it's almost easier for Sarah to believe something completely ludicrous, which is, you know, I don't want to give too much away, but, you know, it's, it's almost easier to believe that, you know, her friend's father was a spy and, you know, that she didn't die than to just, you know, wrap her head around the, the far more sort of existentially terrifying finality of, of losing someone, you know what I mean? And I don't even just mean death, but, you know, if a relationship ends and you just, you go from feeling like this person is your closest confidant to just never talking to them again, it's very, you know, it's a very strange thing to wrap your head around. And, and so I think sometimes we will go, we want to believe anything but the worst, you know what I mean? Or we want to believe anything but that someone is really, really gone. So it was important to me that I, um, in real life, Samantha Smith did die in a plane crash with her father and their remains were found. There's no, there's absolutely no possibility that Samantha Smith is still alive. Um, in my book, which is, you know, not a romantic left, it's loosely inspired by the true story of Samantha Smith, but the events are entirely fictionalized. Um, you know, I I thought, okay, well, but what if the plane was incinerated, incinerated, and they didn't actually have remains? You know, then of course it is easier for Sarah to believe, you know, that that the death was a hoax. Um, you know, if there if there had been remains, she probably would not believe anything. You know, she would she would have ignored the letter she got from <laughs> Moscow suggesting her friend's death is a hoax. But there's still that little tiny, you know, she thinks, oh. Well, that's true. There weren't remains. Maybe, maybe it's possible, you know. Um, and, you know, that when I lived in, I lived in Moscow for two years, and all my Russian friends were basically conspiracy theorists. I can't say I blame them, given that their government systematically lied to its people for a long time. But, um, but one of the things that they would all say to me is, oh, you don't really think you landed on the moon, did you? You know, this is a very common belief there that, that the United States... Um, did not really land on the moon. That it was all kind of Hollywood special effects, and so um, you know when you have this kind of sort of paranoid mindset where there's a, a belief that everything is kind of staged, <laughs> and that there um, you should never take anything that you see on the news at face value. It's hard not to let that mentality kind of seep seep in. You know, you start to think, oh, God, is that true? Was that true? I don't know. You know, you it, you become susceptible. I think. So Sarah becomes susceptible, you know, and partly because of her own desperate need to, you know, not believe in loss, as you said, because loss is such an, a horrible impossibility. Um, and and partly just because, you know, she's been longing for a chance to go to Moscow. She's been waiting for an invitation for all those years, and when it finally comes, she kind of can't resist. So I'm wondering what your with this book, but also just you as a person, your thoughts about reimagining history? Well, I always think about that wonderful Joan Didion line, we tell ourselves stories in order to live. And I think that's really true, that I think all of us as people kind of need to create narratives for our lives. Um, I think it, 
you know, actually becomes really necessary if you've had some sort of trauma or, you know, difficult time. I think sometimes you do have to kind of reimagine it or you have to sort of give yourself power as the narrator. I think it can be a very empowering experience, I think, to sort of make yourself the narrator of your own story. Um, uh, and I think, you know, Sarah sort of does that for a long time. She felt like she was, you know, a peripheral character um, in her own life. And then, you know, in a way, even sort of writing this story, you know, telling her story herself becomes this kind of empowering act. Um, so I do think in a way you can reimagine it. I mean, I don't know if you can change it, but I think just by being the narrator, you know, by kind of telling yourself stories, you survive. And I think it's a really human impulse. You see it with little kids. You know, they, I have three nieces and one nephew. And, you know, from such a young age, they start kind of creating little narratives. We all have that urge. And I think I've always loved fiction that plays with that tension where almost the storytelling becomes a motif of the book, where you have a sense of a character sort of trying to make sense of, of events in his or her life. I'm thinking of things like Graham Greene's The End of the Affair, which is a really wonderful novel, and it's basically this narrator sort of looking back on this relationship that ended, and, you know, the real tension is coming from, with memory, you know, because you just sort of, when a character is trying to remember something, it's not just about the events themselves, there's a kind of texture that comes from the character's rumination. I, I love fiction that feels, where the consciousness feels so sort of lucid on the page that you, you sometimes forget it is fiction, you know, you just have a sense that you're kind of, you know, you you sort of follow this line of thought, and it and it feels there's nothing artificial about it. You know, it feels so true somehow that, that you kind of have to remind yourself that someone made it all up. <laughs> You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Elliot Holt, author of the novel, You Are One of Them. Well, I'm wondering with this book, because there is so much loss of love, romantic and otherwise, uh-huh. about your own, how that mirrored your own experience. I've read that you went through a breakup and that you've uh-huh. said that this was the loneliest year of your life. And how did that affect your writing? Do you think that was necessary? Um, well, you know, I, God, I think um, it's funny because I find that I always do my best work when I'm alone most of the time. And so I, I don't know how to I've always had my most productive writing times when I'm single. <laughs> and I know that it's not impossible to balance. I mean, in theory, it shouldn't be impossible to balance a social life with a writing life. I, I'm not very good at doing it. I, You know, I think there are other writers who aren't very good at doing it. There's probably a reason that Philip Ross, you know, Philip Ross wrote as many books as he did because he kind of pushed everything else aside. And, um, you know, I'd like to think that it would be easier to balance those things. But I do find that I'm incredibly productive when I'm by myself that I just you know because it's not just during the day it's just sort of all the those lonely hours at night and whatever when I just I mean I read a lot a lot a lot but I just also all that ruminating that you do when you're not conversing with someone else (laughs) so I guess it is good for my writing it sounds terrible but um but yeah I did I I I did go through a, a really hard breakup um I was already working on this book but it's funny it was only after that breakup that the the you know voice really clicked for me and everything so I guess I'm not sure the book would be here if we were still together <laughs> it sounds terrible what are your thoughts about coming at your work from a place of heartbreak the thing is you want to come from a place of real feeling you know so that you're not sort of holding the work at arm's length or something and that you really um you know you want it to have a real kind of raw emotional core I think I feel like a lot of my 30s were sort of about grief because 
my mother died when I was 31, and I was actually in graduate school at the time, and it was really hard for me. I mean, I had a few months where I really just couldn't write anything because I was so just wrecked by it. But then, of course, a lot of the writing that I did subsequently, and I would really say in that whole decade, is so fueled by that loss. Um, and yeah, I just think it's, it you know, it sort of burrows into you. So it's even, you're not even conscious of it necessarily, but I mean, I just, I feel really defined by that loss, you know, for good and for bad. So I think it's true. I think, you know, loss is a big, um, whether it's romantic loss or loss of a child or, you know, loss of a parent or, I mean, I have a, a, a really good friend who has stage four cancer and is like really, really ill right now. And I just, you know, it's, you know, I just, um, I feel primed for life. You know, I feel, feel sort of primed for um, loss sometimes. Um, and I don't know if that's good or bad, but you become almost like a little tuning fork where you're sort of picking up on, on these reverberations. And so I think I, I guess I just feel like certainly for the last decade, loss has been finding its way into all my work, or I'm certainly writing from that place. Which is not to say that my life is sad. I think my like a lot of fun all the time, but it's just, you know, on the, it's, it's still such a big part of my subconscious. I think that it's obviously finding its way into my work. Well, most people become writers because they're just interested in the human experience. Exactly. Exactly. And I think, you know, and we're interested in language and we're interested, exactly. And we're sort of interested in the kind of psychological underbelly or whatever. You know, we're not interested in the, the people who are, who have it all together all the time. I wrote about this for a, I had a piece in the New York Times Magazine at the end of September, and then they have a the magazine's blog on the New York Times website. They have people who write lives columns, write little pieces about really good writing advice they received. And so I wrote a little thing about this really great advice that Charles D'Ambrosio gave me, and he the advice came to him from James Salter. He was in a workshop with Salter at Iowa, I guess, and Salter said, it's hard to get over the habit of being civilized. Um, and what he meant was, you know, that writers sort of have to get past that that civilized place. We may be taught to be sort of polite and careful and not offend anyone in life, but on the page, good stories are about when the polite discourse breaks down and when characters aren't necessarily behaving politely. Um, and, you know, you, so you have to sort of go for that uncivilized place, and sometimes it's hard to do, and, you know, if you've been raised not to offend anyone and not to, you know, but you you sort of have to push back past the civilizing to the dark place and find that kind of real, you know, these places of desperation, characters who sort of have moments of desperation. And I think that's where all the good fiction is. And I, anyway, when Charlie said that, I thought, God, that's exactly it. And so I, I keep that quote up on my board above my desk, you know, just to kind of remind myself to, to sort of push past the safe, civilized place. Well, can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Alice Munro is my favorite favorite living writer, and I, needless to say, was really thrilled when she won the Nobel Prize. Um, but I I love her work so much, and I I reread her stories a lot. Um, so I'm just going to read a couple of paragraphs of a story called Wild Swans by Alice Munro that is in. Um, her collection called The Beggar Maid, which is one of her one of her earlier collections. And you don't really have to know anything. This is just a <clears throat> rose, the characters um, on this train. She turned by degrees to the window, and he returned to his paper. She remained slightly smiling so as not to seem rude, not to seem to be rejecting conversation altogether. The morning really was cool, 
and she had taken down her coat off the hook where she put it when she first got on the train. She had spread it over herself, like a lap robe. She had set her purse on the floor when the minister sat down to give him room. He took the sections of the paper apart, shaking and rustling them in a leisurely, rather showy way. He seemed to her the sort of person who does everything in a showy way, a ministerial way. He brushed aside the sections he didn't want at the moment. A corner of newspaper touched her leg, just at the edge of her coat. She thought for some time that it was the paper. Then she said to herself, what if it is a hand? That was the kind of thing she could imagine. She would sometimes look at men's hands, at the fuzz on their forearms, their concentrating profiles. She would think about everything they could do, even the stupid ones. For instance, the driver salesman who brought the bread to Flo's store, the ripeness and confidence of manner, the settled mixture of ease and alertness with which he handled the bread truck. A fold of mature belly over the belt did not displease her. Another time, she had her eye on the French teacher at school. Not a Frenchman at all, really. His name was McLaren. But Rose thought teaching French had rubbed off on him, made him look like one. Quick and sallow, sharp shoulders, hooked nose and sad eyes. She saw him lapping and coiling his way through slow pleasures, a perfect autocrat of indulgences. She had a considerable longing to be somebody's object, pounded, pleasured, reduced, exhausted. But what if it was a hand? What if it really was a hand? She shifted slightly, moved as much as she could toward the window. Her imagination seemed to have created this reality, a reality she was not prepared for at all. She found it alarming. She was concentrating on that leg, that bit of skin with the stocking over it. She could not bring herself to look. Was there a pressure or was there not? She shifted again. Her legs had been and remained tightly closed. It was. It was a hand. It was a hand's pressure. Please don't. That was what she tried to say. She shaped the words in her mind, tried them out, then couldn't get them past her lips. Why was that? The embarrassment, was it? The fear that people might hear? People were all around them. The seats were full. It was not only that. Anyway, it goes on. It's it's a really um, tremendously tense scene with this stranger's hand kind of creeping <laughs> creeping into her pants, basically. Why this one, since you love so much of hers? Well, I think that scene is emblematic of a lot of what I love about her work, which is, you know, she zeroes in on these moments with this kind of psychological precision. And, um, you know, there's a real strangeness. On the one hand, this character is kind of, you know, she's sort of sexually avid and curious, even though she hasn't yet at that point had sex. But she's also, you know, has this wild imagination. And so she's really trying to reconcile what's going on in her head with what's going on in the world outside. And she's sort of, you know, this stranger sitting next to her, he's a minister. She sort of thinks, well, he couldn't possibly be actually sliding a hand up my leg. <laughs> you know, he, couldn't be, he couldn't be sliding a hand down in my pants. Um, I must be imagining this. And then, you know, eventually she realizes that she's not imagining it. But, um, But it's this, you know, on the surface, you think, well, wait a minute, she's, it's a girl being molested on the train. But it becomes much more complicated and nuanced and odd the way Alice Monroe renders it, you know, and it's really unsettling. But at the same time, she gets at all the sort of kind of different conflicting emotions in that moment, you know. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Elliot Holt author of the novel, You Are One of Them. 
Can you read something that you wrote? It can be something that you thought was hard to write or something that changed or something you mm-hmm. you really like. I'll just read the, the first few pages of chapter one because I think, you know, this is the moment when I thought, okay, this book is going to work. <laughs> you know, when this, when this, when these lines came out, it was, I was done rewriting, you know, the same bad pages over and over again. It was like, this is when I unlocked the voice. The first defector was my sister. I don't remember her, but I have watched the surviving Super 8 footage so many times that the scenes have seared themselves on my brain like memories. In the film, Isabel, Izzy for short, four years old, dances on a beach. She is twirling around and around and around again until she falls in the sand. There is grace in her fall. She does not tumble in a heap, but composes herself like a ballerina. She wears a bathing suit with the stars and stripes design that the U.S. swim team wore in the 1972 Summer Games in Munich. It is the same suit that Mark Spitz wore when he swam to gold seven times. On Izzy, the Speedo bunches near her armpits, but is taut across her stomach. Her body has already lost most of its toddler pudge. Her legs are long and lean and are beginning to show muscle definition. My parents were both athletes. Izzy's coordination and flexibility suggest that she, too, will win many races. But her belly still protrudes slightly like a baby's, and there are small pockets of fat on her upper thighs. Behind her, the ocean is calm. Her expression betrays, already, a hint of skepticism. She is the sort of child who is universally declared beautiful. She looks directly at the camera, unafraid of meeting its gaze. My mother hovers at the right side of the frame in sunglasses and a wide-brimmed straw hat. She wears a pink paisley bikini, and she holds me, a juicy nine-month-old, with a half-gnawed banana in my right hand, on her lap. The camera rests for a moment on my face, but I am blurry, and before the focus can be adjusted, the lens turns abruptly back to Izzy, who is kneeling in the sand, strangely reverent, and judging from her moving lips and rhythmically tilting head, singing something. The camera pans to my mother once more. She is laughing, head thrown back. Three minutes of footage shot in August of 1973, exactly one year before Nixon resigned. There are several notable things about this short film. One, my mother looks relaxed and happy. She is laughing at her older daughter, squeezing her younger one. She has all lightness and joy. Two, the camera lingers on her lovely legs for at least four seconds, which suggests that my father, the auteur, was at this point still very much in love with or at least attracted to my mother. Three, my sister is alive. And do you want to say anything else about that? You know, again, when those pages came to me, I just I just had suddenly a really clear sense of, of Sarah Zuckerman, the narrative, narrator, and the way she sort of felt haunted by loss. You know, everything just became clear for me. <laughs> so where do you write? I write um, at a, I write in my apartment, um, and I have a desk, you know, a sort of little office area in my living room, and light is really important to me, so um, it's a room with a lot of sunlight. And what do you do, or where do you go to get away from writing? I walk in the woods, always. Um, I love walking in the woods. I find it very soothing. I, I love to be surrounded by all those trees, and I find um, it just sort of clears my head. So I take long, long walks in all kinds of seasons. <laughs> and who do you show your work to first to get feedback? 
Um, I have a couple of writer friends who are trusted readers for me. One of them is my friend Laura Vandenberg, who just published her second collection of short stories. It's called The Isle of Youth. FSG published it. Um, another friend who reads work is a, a woman named Jamie Quattro, who also wrote an amazing story collection called I Want to Show You More that Grove published last winter. Um, and so, yeah, just a couple of, I have a few, you know, writer friends I'll send, I'll send stuff to. And, uh, and sometimes a few other people. I mean, I, there, I have some writers I knew in graduate school that I sometimes still show stuff to, but lately it's Jamie and Laura. And how have you dealt with rejection? Oh, <laughs> you know, I mean, sometimes it, you know, take to my bed and feel really despondent for <laughs> you know a few weeks. But, um, but you just, I just dust myself off and, you know, I think, well, okay, I'm going to write something better. And I just keep going. And what is your favorite word? I think, it's funny, I think probably lovely. I'm not, it's not that I love it, it's just I think I must love it because I use it more than I probably should. I feel like it turns up in my work a lot. But if, but I also, I love the word dog. And it's really just because I love dogs so much. But it's also just kind of a great, you know, it's so guttural, dog. The sound of it is great. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Elliot Holt, author of the novel, You Are One of Them. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing, and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.